You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. My guest today is Dennis Noble. He's a British biologist who held the Burden Sanderson Chair of Cardiovascular Physiology at the University of Oxford from 1984 to 2004. He was appointed Professor Emeritus and Co-Director of Computational Physiology. He's one of the pioneers of systems biology and developed the first viable mathematical model of the working heart in 1960. His background is, is so extensive, I can't really give it justice but I can give a few more tidbits. Now, he's published over 600 articles in academic journals such as Nature, Science, PNAS, the Journal of Physiology, uh, Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology, and more. He's the author of 11 books so far, The Initiation of the Heartbeat, Electric Current Flow in Excitable Cells, Electrophysiology of Single Cardiac Cells, Goals, No Goals, and Own Goals, Sodium-calcium exchange, ionic channels, and the effect of taurine on the heart, the logic of life, the ethics of life, the music of life, biology beyond the genome, dance to the tune of life, biological relativity. Uh, fantastic person to speak to. I'm really honored to have him on the program, and I hope this introduction has done him justice. This is a great interview. We're talking about a new topic, not really new, but new to most people's knowledge, called exosomes. These are like fluid-filled vesicles that cells in the human body and probably in all uh, biological systems. These are vesicles that cells use to um, communicate with other cells. And there's many, many fascinating implications that come from this. So get ready to listen to the interview. It's awesome. I just had a quick question about your book. So is it are some of the other chapters written by other people, or is it all written by you, or what's the format of it? No, no the, uh, there are 22 chapters. I write one of them. It's an enormous um, compilation of the exosome work in almost every disease you can think of, uh, with obviously oh, wow. a huge focus on cancer, but on many other, you see, the, the, the fact is that exosomes communicate between cells and cells everywhere. And so this has opened up an absolute can of worms. I mean, if you can communicate from anything to anything, including down to the germline, you, you've got a big problem. This, it opens up the uh, number of possible interactions between cells in the body to an enormous degree. I think that's why the the interest is is so high. It can be a diagnostic tool, obviously. You, you can you can check whether you've got the profile of 
components, proteins, RNAs and DNAs that might indicate a cancer or might indicate some other disease. Um, and all you've got to do is take a sample of, of exosomes from um, the blood plasma. <laughs> it, it's, uh, in one it's sense, it's endlessly easy. But in another sense, it's quite difficult because these things are extremely small. They're much smaller than a bacterium, um, about a fifth of the size of even the smallest bacteria, and so you can't see them with a light microscope. So there's no way of getting at them through the usual technique of, of just putting a bit of solution underneath a microscope. You've got to use really, really clever techniques to isolate and work out what's in them. Well, how were, how were exosomes first discovered and who discovered them and, and how? That's, that's a lovely question. You know, they've been known for ages. You see, I'm, I'm a physiologist, <laughs> Rich, so I laugh at this kind of situation. But you see, long, long, long ago, you know, maybe 80 years ago, we knew that nerve cells pour out chemicals in tiny vesicles. And what are exosomes? They're tiny vesicles filled with chemicals. The difference is that when neurophysiologists discovered that a nerve communicates with a muscle via acetylcholine, for example, um, we, we found that, of course, there were tiny vesicles liberated from the nerve ending that contain acetylcholine. The difference is that what exosomes as they're referred to today contain mm. is bits of DNA, bits of RNA, bits of various proteins. In other words, a, um, a set of the characteristic of a particular cell in terms of its gene expression. Huh. And if that can in turn determine the gene expression of another cell, you've got a means of communication that is absolutely phenomenal. So I think I see why this is so big. So what 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 does this bring to mind for you? Let's say like within uh, the heart, do you think that the different heart cells are communicating all the time and that's how maybe they, they paste make or they perform other functions? Like what no, does this no, imply? I, no, I don't think that's necessary, actually. The pacemaker mechanism, if I can blow my own trumpet for a moment, was worked out a long time ago. It, it relies on electrophysiological properties of the ion channels in the pacemaker cells. We don't actually need this kind of cell-to-cell -cell communication. All you need is a bit of electrical connection, mm -hmm. and we know that that is provided by the, uh, what are called the, um, goodness me, just now, the nexus junctions, that's right, um, right. That, that enable one cell to be electrically connected to another. So in that case, you don't actually need cell-to-cell -cell communication via exosomes. But what's becoming clear is that, uh, I mean, most cells are not communicating electrically with other cells. Um, what's becoming clear is that they're communicating, nevertheless, through the exosome route, which, which just means uh, an extracellular vesicle, a bit of uh, lipid, uh, lipid globule, like a little bubble, that contains a 
um, a set of the molecules that come from that particular cell, and which they can, can, therefore can, can communicate the epigenetic effects to another cell. Well, I have, I have tons, of, tons of questions about this. This is so, so amazing. So is there an organelle inside the cell that you think uh, is responsible for creating the exosomes? Like how, are they, how does the yes. cell know to create them and how does it create them? Yes, the, the, well, there is what's called the endoplasmic reticulum, which is another sort of fancy word for lipid membrane systems inside the cell. There are many of those, ribosomes and mitochondria and so on. But there is also a, a reticular network inside cells, and it's budding off from uh, that network that you, you get the little bits, little vesicles that then can... Um, exit from the cell itself, just as a neurotransmitter exits from um, a nerve cell to communicate with another nerve cell or a muscle cell. So to answer your question earlier on, how long have we known about exosomes? As a physiologist, I would say for at least 80 years. What, what's different is this knowledge now that they can contain the epigenetic data. And that is phenomenal because once you com communicate ec epigenetic data from one cell to another and not necessarily as the same cell type, it could be down to the germline, for example, then you have the possibility of controlling the genome in those other cells. That's why it's so big. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so what do you think is happening, you know, for instance, in the human body? Are these cells of a particular organ communicating with other organs or with the cells in the same organ or with other body systems? Like what kind of communication do you think is going on? They're doing both, communicating to the cells within the same organ, but they're also, because they're poured out into the bloodstream, into the lymph um, vessels and, and therefore into the body fluids in general, they're communicating everywhere. Now, what this book that uh, I'm partly involved in, both in writing the chapter I wrote and in being one of the editors is concerned with is, is precisely the question, to what extent can one use the um, measurement of exosomes and what they contain to give you diagnostic tools for anything ranging from possible cancer development through to why some males don't produce enough sperm to be fertile. I mean, the, the, the range is, is phenomenal. I, I've, I've got in front of me, and, and I'm, I've asked the other editors whether I can send you the, at least the list of the titles of the chapter in the exosome book, and I'm just looking for it at the moment. Um, I have um, somewhere here, can't find it just at the moment, um, a, a list, and it goes, it goes through virtually all the various disease states of the body. Wow. And there's a chapter on each of those. That's why the chapters number about 20. Can you, can you give an example of maybe the one chapter or the one disease that you're most familiar with and talk about the mechanisms in which exosomes contribute to it or affect the disease? Yes. I where most people are focusing at the moment because it gives possibility that you can get a diagnosis for um, a cancerous development uh, simply by taking 
uh, a sample of exosomes from somebody's blood plasma. And that's what one of the chapters, of course, is concerned with. To what extent can this be used as a diagnostic tool um, to let you know whether cells are communicating what you might call cancerous signals to other cells and therefore being part of the mechanism by which cancer spreads. Um, I, I don't know, to be really honest with you, the extent to which that is actually going to work out in clinical practice. As I said earlier on, the detection of exosomes and being able to observe them is a very big technical problem because they're so tiny. As I said, they're, they're smaller than bacteria. They're very tiny indeed. And so the, uh, for them to be good diagnostic tools, people are going to have to develop the technology for detecting them and working out what is in them to a greater extent uh, than is the case at the moment. And, of course, some of the chapters I'm partly involved in editing are dealing with precisely that. How, how could the techniques be developed into good um, clinical practice? Well, when, uh, perhaps uh, since the exosomes are being created within the cell, you know, if you were to take a sample of a cell or two and then open it up somehow and see the exosomes before they left the cell, it might be easier to, uh, you know, to find out what they are. Maybe they're, they take time to migrate out through the cytoplasm, out through the uh, membrane. I don't know. I see. Well, you, yes, the difficulty is there's so much else in the cell that would confuse you. Um, I, can only, I can only say, uh, Rich, that, the, that what I've learned so far from reading some of the chapters that are coming in is that it's damn complicated. But um, I don't want to give the impression that it, it can't work. I think it can. Um, I think the, it, it's like any new technology in biology. It will need refinement to make it usable clinically, but I'm sure that will happen because the rewards for being able to do this properly are, are sufficiently great to make it worth doing. Well, how, again, experimentally were exosomes observed? Well, what uh, equipment was required and in what circumstance did it happen? Uh, a very wide range of techniques are being used. Um, obviously, because they're so tiny, you have to go to electron uh, microscopy to see them directly. Um, so from that point of view, it's quite difficult because... Uh, you, you can't be using electron microscopes um, on an ordinary clinical basis. So a variety of other techniques have developed. Uh, some use um, what's called microfluidics, which is to detect within the uh, blood plasma itself the fluid that once you've taken the cells out, you've got just the plasma, how you can detect whether microsomes are present, and the fact is that what you find is that wherever you take plasma, you'll find microsomes present. Um, there are various uh, techniques uh, for using optical methods like flow cytometry, which is used to detect the exosomes in the suspension of the plasma. Um, but the, the, the best comment I can make on this is that 
you probably need, and indeed the chapters in, in the book that I'm involved in editing show this, you probably need to use a variety of these techniques at the moment to get reasonable certainty that what you're looking at are indeed exosomes um, in the sense that they are these little vesicles that communicate um, the pattern of RNAs and DNAs um, that come from particular cells. So I think the best answer I can give you at the moment is that you need a, a set of techniques to be reasonably certain that you, you've got what you're looking for. Hmm. And uh, it would probably be a tall order then to say, well, okay, they found some of what's inside an exosome, but it, is there any structure inside the exosome? Is it like a mini cell or a mini organism, or is it just, you know, I don't know, mRNA and things like that just sitting in this little vesicle and it just, you know, and, and also what happens to it when a cell takes it in? How does it take it in? Does it have certain well, receptors for it? Okay. No, no, no particular difficulty with that. That's part of the story that we understand pretty well. Just as nerve cells um, secrete um, the vesicles that contain neurotransmitters, so cells can secrete through their plasma membranes the little vesicles that um, we call exosomes. And the mechanism is very straightforward because lipid membranes like to fuse with each other. So it's not difficult to see how if you've got a vesicle inside the cell, it can first fuse with the cell membrane itself and, and then uh, proceed to be expelled as a tiny vesicle uh, by the cell. So we don't have too much difficulty understanding how it can be that the vesicles get out of a cell. As I said earlier on, we've, as physiologists, we've known that for very many decades, that vesicles can be excreted from cells. Um, as I said earlier, the, the excitement of the development of exosome technology today lies in the fact that they don't just contain um, an interesting uh, transmitter like acetylcholine or noradrenaline or norepinephrine, uh, but they can contain RNAs and DNAs. Now, to come to your question, how can the cell take that up and use it, we've actually known that from um, evolutionary studies on bacteria and other uh, tiny cells, prokaryotes in general, for a long time. Hmm. Um, the, the bacteria are, are promiscuous. They exchange DNA with each other um, uh, all the time. Um, so there's no serious difficulty. Once an RNA can get inside a cell by being communicated through that exosome fusing with its cell membrane and then going inside, well, it's perfectly straightforward to be, to, to, for it then to be um, incorporated into the genome. And we know that. We, we've, we've, that there's evidence that that is exactly what happens. You can show that even across different species, you can transmit DNA from one species to another through the exosome route. Now, the really exciting part of all of this, as so far as I'm concerned, 
looking at it from the point of view of my interest in uh, evolutionary biology is that since that transmission can occur to the germline cells, we've been able to show, and that's what I show in my own article, that the um, exosomes can be not only uh, transferred from one cell to another, but incorporated via the sperm into the egg cell to be then incorporated into the genome of the developing organism. And, you know, you can't have something, it's hard to imagine something bigger than this in terms of epigenetic effects because it means that you're actually um, changing the genome of an egg cell. And the implications of that are obviously huge. Yeah, this is the missing piece to how acquired characteristics or epigenetic changes get passed down to uh, future generations. Yes, that's right. And that brings us back to Darwin's idea. And the extraordinary thing is how close the um, exosome um, work is to Darwin's original Gemmules idea. He he got on to this because he accepted um, Lamarck's idea that there had to be inheritance of acquired characteristics. So uh, around a dozen places in the Origin of Species where he says that. Now, later evolutionary biologists, particularly Weissman and Wallace, um, did not like this idea. They they actually were almost embarrassed by the fact that Darwin had accepted some of Lamarck's ideas, and they tried to um, remove those aspects of Darwinism um, in what then became, of course, neo-Darwinism, the idea that um, really the, the genome was completely isolated. That was Weissmann's barrier. The problem is that the exosome route um, via the sperm cells uh, actually breaks the, the Weissmann barrier. It goes straight through. In, in my own article, I refer to some of the work of Spadafora, who works in Rome, in Italy. And he's shown very clearly that the um, RNAs that can be communicated by the sperm can get incorporated into the egg cell and that you then get it incorporated directly into the genome. So it's a, it's a transmission that is, is clearly communicating some information. The question is, what information? But it's clearly communicating some information about the soma, about the rest of the organism that produce those exosomes, into the germline, which is the reason why I think that it's a possible route by which Lamarckian effects can occur. And that's what Darwin developed. He, mm. After he wrote The Origin of Species, when he came on later to write um, uh, about the domestication of animals and plants, for example, one of his later books, he, he elaborates this idea, which he calls gemules, but they're, they're exosomes. He says they are um, little particles that get communicated from one cell to another. Mm. <laughs> He's almost giving the definition of an exosome. Yeah. Of course, he couldn't have known that the particles actually exist. It was, to him, just a hypothesis to try to reconcile his acceptance of Lamarck's ideas with his own work. But, in effect, he was describing the exosome idea. Well, I've heard that um, 
bacteria communicates and they have things like quorum sensing and you know that's when they decide let's say to infect a host and they can count supposedly the number of the same you know type of bacteria that are around and the type of other bacteria that are different from them i know it's not species yeah. but it's you know it's another level do you think that uh, you know somatic cells can do the same thing and more you think they are doing the same thing? Yes, I think they're doing almost exactly what the bacteria are doing. Uh, as it were, promiscuously exchanging DNA and RNAs. Yes, I think that's a good way to describe it. I mean, if, you, if you've got cells communicating with other cells everywhere in the body, uh, and obviously initially in the same tissue, but then also communicating to other tissues, including the germline, then you've got a mechanism that's very much like the uh, exchange of genetic material and RNAs um, in bacteria. But it's occurring, of course, in multicellular organisms. Hmm. And that's partly why I think that from, uh, how should I best put this, from the fundamental aspects of biology, I think it's a major development. And it's certainly a major development given the implications for evolutionary biology. Have there been any experiments you've seen where, let's say, someone takes, um, you know, two, three, five, I don't know, a thousand cells of a particular tissue, you know, puts them in a petri dish, cultures them, and then tries to see if they're communicating and how and what exosomes are floating around in that dish? Is that possible? No, I, I don't actually know whether that's been done. I'd be surprised if it has not been done. Um, and I'm looking, as one of the editors of this book, as the chapters come in, for um, knowing whether a mechanism like that is described. Actually, in the titles of the chapters, and I, I have asked the other editors whether we could let you have the titles of the chapters so that you, you have um, a good uh, indication of what the exosome book will be dealing with. I think that would, would help you. Um, and I think they'll, they'll agree. They're, they're consulting amongst themselves and with the publisher, which is Elsevier, incidentally. Um, but to come back to the, the, the question you're asking, have people done it in cell culture? I don't actually know. I've been watching as the chapters come in, and about half of them are already in. We would expect that the rest will be in within a month or two. Um, I haven't yet seen that kind of experiment done, but I have seen a related experiment, and it interests me from the point of view of the heart, because at a conference I was present at last year um, in the south of France, in Set near Montpellier, um, some cardiac physiologists described a fascinating experiment. You can identify certain RNAs that will control the expression level of what is sometimes called the pacemaker uh, current channel. That is one of the iron channels in pacemaker cells that controls the frequency with which the heart beats. And their experiment was, was lovely. It was to first identify some of the RNAs that are involved in controlling that particular uh, protein channel and therefore the extent to which it contributes to the frequency of the, of the heartbeat 
and then transfer those RNAs to the beating sinus node, that is the pacemaker region of the heart, of a totally different species. And the RNAs control the beating of that heart too. In other words, you, you can actually transfer the RNA information across from one species to another. So now that's not that that is well it is tissue experiment in one sense isn't it because after all these are isolated tissues uh, from the pacemaker region I don't know whether that particular experiment has yet been published it was presented at a conference that I was present at in September of of last year so just a few months ago but I have no doubt that it will come out fairly soon so you can transfer <coughs> RNAs um, from uh, one uh, tissue, in this case the beating heart of one kind of, um, uh, of, of, of from one species to another to enable it to respond by controlling its frequency. There's also um, evidence that the way in which athletes control their heart rate, you probably know that athletes can actually reduce their heart rate, which is extremely valuable um, in their performance, because if you can keep your heart rate low, there is a big reserve of um, cardiac contractile and frequency activity, which is what enables, of course, a, a really good athlete to have that kind of reserve in play to enable them to be better than, uh, to be super athletes, as it were. Now, the, it was originally thought that the way in which um, athletes did this through their training was to, in some way, control the vagus nerve activity, because the vagus nerve slows the heart. And we've been able to show that that is not the way it's done. It's actually done epigenetically. It's done... What if you could learn about the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers in a four-day experience co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism, and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss. Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, Suzanne Ryan of Keto Karma, Thomas Seyfried, uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Ede, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're going to dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You'll get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative. Cedars-Sinai is accredited by ACCME, 
to provide continu continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21 and a half AMA PRA Category 1 credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit metabolichealthsummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must-not-miss seminar. By various RNAs, whether in exosomes or just free RNAs, I'm not totally sure, uh, uh, being communicated uh, to the pacemaker region of the heart of those athletes to slow the rhythm. And that's how the rhythm slowing occurs. I want to, this is a question that's kind of, um, it should have been in the very beginning, but, you know, I noticed that it's weird. It's so, I don't know why evolution and, and biology and these studies are so political. They shouldn't be. But what I yeah, noticed is, is it's know, weird. I, the, the, the neo-Darwinists, they, they don't, um, they don't seem to comment on things like you do. They, they get crazy. They scream and yell. They call you names. They, I've seen them I'm call sorry. other people names. They laugh at people. Why, why, why do you think that happens with this? Well, I think I can give you an idea, um, which I toy with myself, because um, I don't know whether this is a correct comment or not, but I, I notice this because I, I, I work sometimes in the United States. I go from time to time to do experiments for the Mayo Clinic. What I notice is that there's a bigger tension about these issues in the United States. And I think it's the clash with the fundamentalist religious people. I, I, my, my suggestion would be very simply that some of the neo-Darwinists, often themselves very opposed to uh, religion. I, I, don't, I don't have a position on this. I'm neutral with regard to whether people have a belief or not in religion. That's fine. It's up to them. It's their personal choice. But what does seem to me to be the case is that there's a huge number of people in the United States who seriously think that evolution never happened, that you know, we, we, we are and have been developing much as Genesis describes it in a very literal way. Here in the United Kingdom, um, I think it's fair to say that the standard religions, I'm, I'm not talking about the um, the, the sort of strange sects, but the standard religions, Anglican, Roman Catholic, Methodist, and so on, have long ago more or less accepted that evolution has happened, and that you know, whatever you think about the religious implications of that, at least you're not terribly worried about it. And so the debate here is far less um, vituperative, I think. I think that's the best way to put it. And I, I think it might be largely a North American phenomenon. Hmm. Okay. Whether well, I'm right on that, that's my that's my suggestion. <laughs> Why it can get to be so heated? Because it's heated on both sides. The fundamentalists amongst the um, religious. Uh, believers are totally sure they're right, and of course the um, the uh, standard, if I can call them that, neo-Darwinist, if you wish, 
evolutionary biologists, are absolutely certain they're right too. And uh, and there's a there's a clash there, a very clear one. Well, you've been in science for a very long time. What does it feel like after you know 40, 50, 60 years in science? When you look around and knowing all you know, and seeing the complexity of life and the systems and interconnectedness, what I mean, what? How do you summon up in your mind? What does it make you feel or think? It produces in me, uh, Rich, a very deep sense of humility because when I calculate, as I've done in some of my books recently, the total number of interactions that can occur, I mean, even if you take the simplest assumptions that there are only about 25,000 genes, actually we know there must be many more than that because all the RNAs are essentially genes in the sense of being able to control and, uh, and change the activity of the organism. But even if you take only the 20 or 25,000 identified protein-coding genes, you know, the total number of interactions that you can calculate from that is bigger by far than the total number of particles in the known universe. The known universe contains about 10 to the 80 particles, most of them, of course, protons, the nuclei of uh, the hydrogen atom. And the total number of interactions that can occur between 25,000 genes is not 10 to the 80, it's about 10 to the 70,000. <laughs> Oh Absolutely enormous. This is in my book. So there's nothing strange about this. The calculation is very simple. You can do it with a bit of algebra and a bit of work on a, on a calculator. Um, nobody challenges that fact. Um, now, it means, of course, amongst other things, that most of those don't actually exist. Most of those interactions can't possibly exist because there wouldn't be enough material in the whole known universe to enable them to exist. So evolution has obviously found a very tiny fraction of those that actually exist and actually work. But the point I'm coming to now, and the reason that this produces in me a sense of humility, which I have to say I didn't have 50 years ago. I was a good gung-ho, you know, we're going to solve everything in the next 20 years. <laughs> well, we didn't. Mm. And we're not going to solve it in the next 20 years either. It, it's going to take an enormous amount of um, patience and careful, uh, well, what science is very good at, you know, proceeding step by step to work things out, to really work out how that number of genes can interact to produce an organism. And it's been... I think reasonably well proven now that this isn't a matter of imagining a single or just a very few genes being involved in a particular function, because what do the genome-wide association studies tell us? They tell us that you need to add together the contributions of a large number of genes to get a reasonable correlation with any particular phenotype, with any particular characteristic. Again, take athleticism as a, as a good example. Instead of finding maybe a dozen or so genes that would give you an explanation of why somebody's a good athlete and others are not, 
you, you find it's hundreds, even thousands of genes. So that even led some genome-wide association researchers to come to the conclusion that they call the omnigenic hypothesis, which is the idea that, well, practically every gene is associated with every function in the body in, you know, minute contributions from each of them. What this tells me is that the original idea that there was a gene for this and a gene for that, and a gene, maybe just a few genes for this and that, um, it just isn't the right way to look at it. I see genes much more as sequences of DNA as templates which the organism uses to enable it to produce the proteins it needs to function. And so the genome isn't so much an active causation in the organism, but a, a passive causation. It's used by the organism to enable it to create the proteins that it needs. Now, which proteins it needs, it'll be totally different for a bone cell, for a heart cell, for a liver cell. And this is where we come back to exosomes, because, you see, the exosomes from a bone cell and the exosomes from a liver cell and the exosomes from a heart cell will be totally different. They will contain the set of RNAs, DNAs, and proteins that come from that particular cell. That's why the information is so specific. We don't yet know how to understand all of that because I think it is just so damn complicated. It's going to take us a long time to work it out. But what we can be certain of is that the information that is contained in those exosomes is cell-specific. And that, of course, is partly why when you come back to their role in um, disease uh, and all the various disease states that could be described in the exosome book, um, the specificity is so important because if from the exosome analysis you can get an idea of what a possible cancerous tissue is telling the rest of the body, then you've got cell-specific information on that cancerous state. And if, to take a healthy state now, you've got RNAs that come from a region that enable the heart rate to be controlled better, as in an athlete, you, you've got another set of, um, of expression levels of those RNAs and proteins and DNAs in those exosomes that is characteristic of a very different type of cell, a very healthy cell in this case. Well, that's so, what um, I, I thought, you know, I've talked to a number of cancer researchers and I thought, well, you know, why does cancer metastasize, for instance? And my, my theory, which has no support, but I figure the cancer cells are communicating with each other and when conditions are right or wrong, they say, all right, let's spread. So that's how they know how to spread throughout the body. And with metastases, I wonder if the metastases communicate with the mother tumor, for instance, and what they're saying to each other. And I bet you they yeah. do. Well, I'm, I'm pretty certain, Rich, that the, 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 the chapter on cancer in the book that we're producing will address just precisely that kind of question, which is what is the role of exosomes in metastasis. I, I'm in a difficult situation here, of course, because I can't reveal to you what I know from reading the chapters that are coming in. What I have done is to approach the other editors um, and see whether it's possible that we can let you 
have for your uh, website more details on what the book is going to contain because I think that might help people. Yeah, no, that would be great, and I'd definitely love to uh, interview every single person in the book, too. Yeah, I'll get an answer to that very soon. They're, they're checking, and of course they'll have to check with Elsevier, the publisher, that that information can be uh, revealed. Yeah. Right, right. Another implication that came to mind is, imagine now that we know a bit more about exosomes, how are the exosomes communicating, how are our somatic cells communicating with our microbiome, and vice versa? I mean, that opens up like a whole other world of craziness. You know? Yes, no, you're, that, that, that is interesting, I agree. There's even evidence the other way. You know, microbiome uh, DNA. Um, I, I've forgotten now the exact article that I remember on this, but it, it concerns insect microbiome <laughs> um, because there's evidence in certain insects that the um, microbiome has communicated with the DNA of those insects. I'd have to find that reference again. It's probably in my latest book, Dance to the Tune of Life. I'm pretty certain it's there. But the, the fact is that you're quite right. The communication with the microbiome both ways may be very important. You can be certain from what bacteria are capable of doing, um, which is that they communicate with each other all the time and exchange that DNA. It's one of the reasons, of course, why they evolve so rapidly and are giving us a headache with regard to antibiotics because they can transmit the um, basis of resistance to antibiotics uh, uh, between each other. And I have no doubt that they will be communicating with the host that they're living in and, as you say, possibly vice versa. I've no, at the moment, I haven't seen any clear evidence that exosomes, it's so easy to get these muddled up, isn't it? The microsomes, of course, are inside the cell. They become exosomes when they go out of the cell. Um, I, I haven't seen any direct evidence that exosomes actually communicate with the, the microbiome. And that might be because there is, after all, a very strong barrier between the blood circulation and the lymph circulation and the gut. So it wouldn't be easy for the transmission to occur. Well, what if this plays a role in the immune system? What if part of the way the immune system works is that it picks up on exosomes from you know, bacteria that bacteria may release and it, it reads them and sees what's what's coming or what's in the environment, and vice versa. Well, I have to say, Rich, that's a lovely thought. I hadn't thought of that myself. You're right, of course. The After all, the immune system is consuming the bacteria. Yes, and if they can consume it, they can get the DNA. Yeah, yes, just, I love it. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, My, I, I guess I, I have so many questions, I feel like... Uh, at a loss, I don't even know what to ask. There's so much material to talk about. It's crazy. You know? well, well, I'm to be honest, Rich, I'm in the same position because, you see, as I read the chapters that are coming in this book, I, I'm learning a huge amount of stuff that I never knew. And so uh, I, I'm, after all, a practicing biologist and, and medical scientist. And I also feel, you know, that, that the implications of all of this uh, are huge. 
the question whether any of it is really practical and can be used clinically or used now to take an evolutionary perspective in the process of, of evolutionary change, those are very big questions indeed. And I think we're only at the beginning of um, addressing those questions, particularly in relation to the chapter that I wrote, which I, I think I sent you, which I raises the, the very clear possibility that the transmission down through the germline can occur. And I, I'm going to be watching this area, of course, very, very closely indeed. I've noticed by interviewing lots of people that everyone is, is kind of in their own world. And I, I haven't really yet seen someone that has a, you know, let's take cancer, okay? I've never yet seen a mind map of all the possible implications of cancer, for instance, and all the things it could affect. And I've never seen anyone take a 10,000-foot look on everything that's going on or almost everything that's going on within a field. I mean, even if you didn't delve into it, but you had this map in front of you and you looked at it and kept it in mind, I would think it would help you in your work. You know, like, for instance, I've, I've spoken to one lady that her, her whole research is about uh, cancer metastases, and I asked her about cellular communication in cancer. She's like, no, no, they don't do that. And she's not even aware of this. Like, what do you think would be a better way, I guess, to do science and to use collaboration to benefit science? Because it doesn't seem like it's happening. It, it seems like it's happening in silos. It's weird. Yes, you're absolutely right. The siloization of science is a problem, a very big problem. And, of course, it's exacerbated by the scrambling for funding because you you get funding largely by staying in your own silo. You don't easily get funding if you wander outside it. And that's a big difficulty. Um, the the reaction of a committee will be, um, well, he hasn't done anything in this area yet. Well, damn it, you know, if you're proposing to do something new, you probably haven't done anything in the area before. It's going to take the, the, the courageous people who can, um, as it were, communicate across the, the divisions of the fields um, to to really push things forward. I really don't know what the answer is, though, to the... I mean, this is an organizational problem in science, isn't it? How do you encourage the interdisciplinarity that enables people to be courageous enough to enter another field? Because the evidence from the history of science, I think, is very clear. Mm. It's often the people who do the transfer from one field to another that produce the um, uh, major advances. After all, it was physicists, essentially, Watson and Crick, who got the story of DNA uh, essentially right and worked out. It wasn't biologists who did that. And you, you need this cross-fertilization. And, and how one then encourages that, given the what you've identified, I think, correctly, is the, the, the silo mentality. I, I'm really not sure. The, the, the scramble for funding is producing a situation, and, of course, the, 
the, the tendency of universities to measure your um, your scores and citation indices and so on mm. is producing a situation where it's much easier to stay in the same narrow field than to wander around. Yeah, they should, say, uh, they should say, hey, cells are communicating constantly. How come you're not... Yes, indeed. <laughs> That's right. This is a kind of cultural exosome problem, isn't it? How do you enable the the transmission to occur? And people like me, of course, are in a, an almost privileged position because I've been retired from my original uh, uh, chair in the University of Oxford now for nearly 15 years. Yeah. And I've been able to indulge myself in all kinds of activities that I wouldn't have dreamt of doing while I was responsible for a team of 20 people and trying to get their salaries all the time. You know, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're dealing with that, you really will focus on getting those salaries because you're responsible for them. So, you know, the, it is a, the, there is a tendency for, for science, as you said earlier on, to um, stay within it, its silos. And it takes a few brave souls to, to go outside that. Um, those are not in a position where they have to carry on doing that kind of treadmill, yeah. uh, like me, tend to be much more adventurous, I think. There should be more of us. So... How how do you do science today versus the way you did it, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago? And uh, well, like, what yeah, lessons I, have you learned? What, what's new with you that you work with? Yes, I, I've actually branched out instead. I mean, I, I, I as you will probably know, I mean, my major contributions in physiology were to the electrophysiology of the heart. And for something like 45 years, I was totally focused on the ion channels and other transporters in the heart that generate its electrical activity. What am I working on at the moment? I'll tell you. It's um, a medication that was developed and described in a publication that has as its date um, AD 200. As well? It's the Chang Han Lun, which is one of the earliest um, volumes describing Chinese medicine huh. and I've been working using a variety of techniques and a variety of computational methods too to work out why that particular medication works. These of course are herbal extracts so I've hmm. jumped away from my standard field of cardiac electrophysiology to do to use the same kind of ideas that is a systems approach to biological problems to try to analyze um, a medication that's been known for over 2,000 years. So that's what I've done. Okay. But I, yeah, I can do that because I'm no longer on the treadmill and in the silo. Right. Have, are you surprised that medicines work at all, seeing the complexity of life and the complexity um, of all these systems? Indeed. And you see, that, that also explains something else which I think is very worrying. If you look at the graph of um, successful launching of new medications against time over the last 60 years, it is a relentless decline in terms of the number of new drugs produced by the pharmaceutical industry um, against the 
fact that the investment to produce each of those new drugs has simply mushroomed. We're now in a situation which it requires research that costs you of the order of a billion or two billion or even three billion to have a reasonable chance of getting a new drug onto the market. That's the scale of the problem. And it's nowhere more <laughs> illustrated than the scare over antibiotics, where uh, largely the, the pharmaceutical industry has not met the challenge, which is to find uh, as many new antibiotics as we can, given that the bacteria is evolving fast enough to make many of our uh, defenses be fragile, to say the least, and possibly even useless. We'll have to wait and see, of course, how the situation develops. Do you I think, think um, that, the, the medicine has discovered the low-hanging fruits and that's why it's so much exactly. harder to find them? Absolutely. I think that's exactly what happened. And, of course, the low-hanging fruit started with antibiotics. That was a fantastic discovery in penicillin and, and, and later ones. Um, and, of course, if you're interested simply in killing bacteria, then, of course, you've got the right kind of, of, of approach. And, of course, the, um, what you call the low-hanging fruit of being able to identify uh, some of the key receptors that hold the main physiological functions of the body, um, drugs have been found to deal with those. But when you come to the complex diseases of modern society, particularly aging society, um, uh, diabetes, uh, the problem of obesity, the, the problem of very complex interactions of cardiovascular disease and immune system disease, what you find, of course, is that there's no longer a single drug that will do the trick. And what you find, you go around, I must, it must be true in the United States as well as it is here, if you go around uh, a general ward um, or a cardiovascular ward, um, of uh, many of them very in a aged people being treated, you'll find that the medication nurse goes around with a cocktail of maybe six or more drugs per patient, mm, which they're right. being prescribed because no single drug will do the, do the trick. Now, that brings me back to, if you like, the wisdom of some of the um, oriental medication. They are, of course, multiple. They're not single chemicals. Right, and because they come from a, an organism, so they have... They come from organisms that have developed over billions of years of evolution. And after all, why do plants have particular chemicals in them uh, rather than others? I mean, there's only a, a minute fraction of the total range of chemicals that there could be that you find in plants. It is because they have function. The, the plant either needs those chemicals itself or it needs those chemicals to defend itself or it needs those chemicals to be attractive to um, other organisms that eat it and uh, distribute its seeds uh, and so on and so forth. So from an evolutionary perspective, it, it's reasonably understandable why most plants will produce a range of chemicals that have functional effects, um, even in combination, because that's exactly what they've been evolved to do. 
I guess also for purposes of redundancy, like, you know, I had seen in your writing when you talked about the heart and you had, you know, uh, it has redundancy and to ensure that it pace makes and beats and does what it does. So absolutely so. No, you've got that absolutely right. I, I showed around 30 years ago that the pacemaker is very redundant. You, you can knock out um, one of the key uh, protein mechanisms or its gene uh, that is responsible for cardiac rhythm and you get very little change in frequency. It doesn't mean to say that that particular protein is not uh, functional. On the contrary, we know it is. But what it tells you is that there's enough redundancy there um, to enable the heart to go on beating away even when one of its major mechanisms is knocked out. And I, I think this is general. There was a study in yeast about um, 12 years ago by Hillen Mayer and his colleagues. They did a systematic knockout, one by one, of most of the 6,000 genes in yeast. 80% of the knockouts don't seem to produce a phenotypic effect in mm. terms of the production and metabolism of the yeast. And again, that doesn't mean to say that they're not functional. It's simply that the, the, the yeast has so many different ways of coping when it lacks particular proteins that it can manage and manage pretty well. And I think that's fairly general. It's certainly true in relation to the heartbeat that you've got several mechanisms, any one of which can make sure that it continues. Well, so if you think about the fact that a lot of life seems to have redundant systems, and I'm sure this extends to bacteria, and you look at the ability for these organisms and us to evolve in response to pressures and, you know, adverse yes. effects, there's no wonder that a single medicine would be lame against uh, a creature that can do that and has those redundancies. Yep, that's right. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. Hmm. Now, what we do about this from the point of view of dealing with the challenge of modern medicine in relation to aging populations, that's one of the huge issues that we have to face, and I, I'm not sure what the answer is. As I watch the, um, which I had to do when my wife was in hospital for several years before she passed away, um, you know, I, I, I watched the way in which doctors treating a complex of interactive disease states were reduced to having what I called a cocktail of six, seven, eight, or even more uh, drugs being prescribed to the patient. Now, has anybody done a clinical trial of all of that? Of course they haven't. You can't do clinical trials of, of multiple medications at once. It's difficult enough to do clinical trials with just one medication and a placebo. Hmm. So we're already actually feeling our way with uh, multiple medications being prescribed to deal with multiple disease states, and uh, that's the best that people can do. But we've no idea what the interactions are between many of those uh, drugs that are prescribed together, because they, 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 as I said, you, you can't do many clinical trials with multiple drugs. Just too many combinations to make that uh, financially possible. Hmm. So there's a big problem there, which uh, with some kind of, um, of well, it's a technological problem in one sense, of course, but it's also a conceptual problem. 
I, part of the reason why I go back to the idea that the plants have developed combinations of chemicals that are effective is that they've done it for us. They've taken billions of years to do it, <laughs> but they've done right, it. Yeah. And because it's been the evolutionary process that has enabled that to happen. Uh, we're not going to find that within just a decade or two, we're going to be able to reproduce all of that. But I think that's a reason why I would recommend um, much more attention is, is, should be given to uh, plants, as indeed it was, uh, you know, two or three hundred years ago in the first and early developments of Western medication. After all, many of the drugs in the Western pharmacopoeia actually mm. came from plants in the first place. They may now be made chemically, of course, as a chemical synthesis, but that's where <clears throat> often they first arose. And I think it's probably around 50% of the Western pharmacopoeia that has as its um, <clears throat> original uh, basis right. the, the presence in, in plants. Hmm. But that's well, why I'm doing what I'm doing, you see. That's why my present interest has switched. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm leaving the heart to those who can be much cleverer <laughs> than me, <laughs> pushing the heart forward and <laughs> moving into another area <clears throat> that very few other people seem in the West to uh, want to do, uh, but which I'm finding very rich and rewarding. Okay. Well, I know we've been on for a while, so I, I want to be respectful of your time, so we'll we'll finish soon. Um, oh. If you would, can I ask you one more question, and it's probably a big one, but um, it, <clears throat> all the talk about uh, evolution, you know, that I've heard is it takes I don't know, thousands of generations and millions of years, or, you know, at least many, many, many years. Have we ever observed the creation of a new species or of such a drastic change in an organism in one generation that we can see evolution at work, or does okay. it always seem to happen over you know a long period of time and we're never able to visual see see when yeah. it happened? You know? That's a lovely question. I'll, I'll give you one answer. There is, um, this comes from the Galapagos Islands, which of course has a huge iconic uh, significance in evolutionary biology because it's where Darwin uh, got his ideas in the voyage of the Beagle, of course. Mm. Now, those islands are pretty far flung from each other. Well, not all of them, but some of them are pretty far flung. There can be as much as 100 kilometers between one island and another. A single finch from one island, a male, got across that long sea journey to a different island. And it bred with the finches, that are a different species, on the island that it got to. That's produced a new strain. I can get you the reference for that if it, if it interests you. Um, and I, I think that one is also quoted in my recent book, Dance to the Tune of Life. But if it isn't, it's certainly quoted in one or other of my recent articles. Um, it's what James Shapiro uh, would call the, um, the effect of hybridization, because after all, that produces a hybrid between one species and another. Mm. 
And the effect within a single generation that has produced a new strain. Now, whether you call it a new species, I, I mean, that's a big question, of course. The definition of a species is problematic. Usually, it's whether the animals can breed with each other. Um, but even that is not a secure uh, definition of a species. But that's perhaps the most dramatic example because it's well documented. Um, that, that was a paper, in, I think, in Nature uh, that I'd be able to find if you really want it. But it's very yeah. rare. You're quite right. The, generally, evolution will occur so slowly that you can't observe it in just a generation or so. Well, that, that's why does it occur? Uh, if it occurs slowly, it seems to. Why does it occur slowly? Why can't it occur in one generation? And there must be a tallying of changes that build up and build up and build up, and all of a sudden, it's a, there's a tipping point. Because otherwise, how could it happen it, like that? Yes, I think the tipping point idea is a very good one. I I remember a debate that I shared about ten years ago between. Uh, Richard Dawkins and Lynn Margulis. Lynn Margulis was the great proponent of symbiogenesis, and uh, Richard, of course, was defending the standard um, neo-Darwinist evolutionary biological viewpoint. It was a very interesting debate, which has been it's recorded too and and still available. And um, what I found was that the how best to put this. Um, I was chairing the debate, of course, which is not a good position to be in. You can't, you can't sort of weigh in yourself in the way that you would love to do. Um, but it seemed to me that I mean, they came to the evolutionary process from very different perspectives. To come to your point, Lynn, of course, thinks, well, she thought, because she, she passed away just a few years ago, um, not too many years after that debate, but she thinks that symbiogenesis is essentially a single generation phenomenon, uh, and the way in which bacteria got absorbed into other prokaryotes to produce what eventually became mitochondria was that they were eaten, <laughs> you know, but not just eaten uh, by the other prokaryotes, but they managed to survive inside the uh, organism that took them in. So they were ingested, but instead of being digested, they were used. And of course, they became the energy producing factories of all the eukaryotic cells that we have today. And we wouldn't exist if we didn't have those uh, mitochondrial energy producing um, uh, parts of our body. All of them developed from uh, what Lynn would describe as a single generation uh, acquisition of one organism by another. And so certainly Lynn Margulis would have said uh, evolution can go in single jumps. Okay. Yeah, I just wondered about that. Yeah. Well, there's my answer. And uh, <laughs> Very good. he was a fantastic but cantankerous scientist, I have to tell you. <laughs> I guess you need to be, you know. She wasn't as good as de a good a debater as Richard Dawkins. Richard is an extremely good debater. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, very good. So, um, for listeners, uh, what, does the book have a name, the Exosome book, and when is it going to be coming out? Yes, I don't know the exact um, date of its appearance. It'll, I think it'll be during 2019. 
But as I said, I will, as soon as I get a reply from my co-editors, I'll be able to let you have more details of it. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.